You know, it's not every day that you have a published author, a Hall of Famer, and just an all-around great guy on your podcast. But that's who we have today on the Greatest Games Podcast is Dr. George Selleck, author of the new book, Kean and Me, Gifts from a Grandson. Join Chris and I in the studio to talk about life, basketball, coaching and his new book again kian and me it released yesterday so get your copy now go to amazon.com right now get your copy of kian and me and check it out it's such a such a life-giving book we talk about it uh, we joked on the air about we just need him just to read it to us such an encouraging book again kian and me check it out what a what a great piece of work and before we get to today's episode, check out teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball for incredible coaching content from the great Steve Collins. Again, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball and the competitive mindset podcast with Billy Kegler is absolutely rolling. We talk about it all the time. Great guests, great content. Again, the competitive mindset podcast with Billy Kegler. Let's go ahead and head into the studio for today's episode of the greatest games. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thanks, Brian. Pleasure to be here on the Greatest Games. As always, a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches and basketball people from around the globe to talk about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a coach, a head coach, an assistant coach, a player, just whatever games that come to mind when you say the greatest games to them. You know, that's true, Chris. And, you know, it could be somebody that maybe is an ordained Presbyterian minister that could be one of our guests. Maybe maybe they were drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors. Who knows? Maybe that, you know what, maybe they scored over a thousand points as a Stanford basketball player in only three years and they've been elected to the Stanford Hall of Fame. And though, by the way, the Pac-12 Pac Ring of Honor, Hall of Honor, excuse me. Uh, well, that's our guest today. And he's also written an incredible book that we're going to talk about. But welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast, Dr. George Selleck. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a joy to be with you all. And Dr. Selleck, all those accomplishments Brian read off, and I know probably father and grandfather are first and foremost among, among any of those other accolades. Well, this is certainly true. I mean, I have three children myself, my, my wife, of course, first wife, and uh, our daughter became a physician, but she passed away in the year 2007. And Barbara had two children, um, a boy and a girl. And, and the young girl, I walked down the aisle and sent her off to graduate school. She's now a trainer of trainers uh, for um, Kaiser Permanetti. And this is her son uh, that is my grandson now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that so much. And, you know, we, we mentioned the book here briefly, but um, Dr. Selleck, this, this is one of those books that, um, that really, and I, I guess I've, I've been a reader at different points in time in my life, but this book, Kean and Me, Gifts from a Grandson, uh, that you've written here that comes out. Uh, it will have come out the day before this podcast released on November the 9th. Um, it's one of those impactful books 
that I could not put down. I picked it up when I got it the other day and I said, let me just knock out a few pages. And then before I blinked, I was halfway through the book and it's just chock full of lessons uh, that your, like you talk about your grandson is teaching you. We'll get more into that book uh, as, as we get into this podcast though, but Tell us a little bit about your journey through basketball. We know I've mentioned those just uh, accomplishments as a basketball player, but very briefly, take us through your journey as a player and then into coaching and then those diversions that you've taken along the way. Well, I started playing uh, basketball as a very, very young boy in the Long Beach YMCA, which was on 6th and American Avenue in Long Beach, California. And that building no longer exists And the first thing that I was asked to do was to get into a tumbling class. And I quickly turned to the other opportunity there and started playing basketball. And I grew up in Compton, California, which uh, is certainly a well-known basketball and I should say a sports community and uh, uh, played uh, the 6-4-4 system there, six years of elementary school, four years of junior high school, So it was very competitive in the ninth and 10th grade in junior high school. Our championship football game uh, attracted 3,000 people. And then you went to high school, and uh, that was on the campus with Compton College that four-year period. And sort of the amazing story of my basketball development, uh, because of various injuries, I really was only able to play one year of high school basketball except for one game my junior year. And in that one year was voted the outstanding uh, CIF player of the year. Uh, So I marvel myself at that story and and try to figure out how that could be. But there's a a lot of injuries involved over the years in the story of my becoming a basketball player and having an opportunity to go uh, to any school that I could in the country. Uh, And uh, I remember my sister answering the phone and says, George is for you. Who is it? Oh, some guy says his name is rough. <laughs> and so we go way back to there those days and a uh, very long time ago. Uh, Brian, we got right into it. Dr. Selleck, what happens on the podcast? Sometimes something comes up and I think of a trivia question to ask. I'm going to ask both of you. I wonder if Dr. Selleck knows this. What former president's been part of his childhood living in Compton, California? Oh, that's quite a question. No, I don't think I know that. Yep. I, I think I could name some that didn't. But yes. <laughs> well, it's this, it's a surprise. George W. Bush. Really? The Bushes lived in Compton when he was a child, when he was an only child, and then his sister was born, who, who died in, in, in uh, her youth. Uh, the Bushes actually lived in Compton, California in, in the uh, mid-1940s. Well, that it's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I don't, Dr. Sugg, I don't feel so bad. He, this is common practice for him to ask a trivia question. I didn't even, you notice, I didn't even attempt to answer that because right, exactly. uh, I knew I was going to miss it. So I'm, I think I'm about one for about 120, I believe. I think I've got okay. more. Right, so. <laughs> uh, Dr. Selleck, I do want, I want to get into the book a little bit now. Um, when you started writing, did you start writing notes down as you were watching your grandson or did you sit down and think, Oh, maybe I can write these letters that could turn into a book or what, what was the, what was the initial Genesis? Well, um, 
my uh, daughter and uh, her husband had been trying to get pregnant and uh, were about to give up and go the medical route when they weren't successful. And then she got pregnant and had a preemie baby. And I was the volunteer gardener uh, at this little home they bought within walking distance of our home. And um, since I was always up at early, early in the morning and have always been all my life, I volunteered to take the first shift when the baby came home from the hospital. And I was immediately captured and, and enthralled by this little one. And uh, over weeks and a few months, perhaps, I started to write down a few observations on a piece of paper. And I was going to give something, put something together for the family for Christmas. And, uh, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll write a book. And uh, uh, then I said, no, I don't really want to do that. I've written a lot of books. I had actually written several books just on basketball and um, never made a penny <laughs> and didn't see myself as a writer. Somebody mm -hmm. called me an author and I go, I go, no, no, I'm not an author. And uh, <clears throat> then I got the idea, well, maybe I'll send him some letters with the idea that he would read this in the summer before he went to college or before perhaps off to the military or to his first job. Uh, but it's definitely written, uh, you know, with teenagers and him as a teenager and uh, a, a basketball name that you would know, Tom Macheri, uh in the Golden State Warriors Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting story. Tom, born in Russia, came to this country as a young man became a Hall of Fame player for the Golden State Warriors and then taught uh, English in school for 27 years and became an accomplished poet. And uh, Tom uh, wrote a review that's actually on Amazon.com with the introduction of the book. Uh, I don't and uh, basically um, made it clear he thinks this book is for every teenager and in young women as well as young men. So that's kind of a nice endorsement. Doc, I, I can't agree with him more. And <laughs> I was, I was jokingly going to say, you know what we need to do for this podcast is just have you just read the book in its entirety. And just so we can just listen to it again, because there's so many, so many great lessons throughout it. And I love to hear that you were just going to jot notes down and then it just from there just grew and grew into this amazing book. But I wanted to, on, on page eight, you talk about the inner critic and your own inner critic and uh, your challenges and battles with that. And, and Chris and I were talking earlier and I mentioned something about inner critic. He's like, yeah, you're inner critic. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm so hard on myself, um, just like a lot of us are. So take us through a little bit of your journey as being your own worst inner critic and maybe some of those things that you've learned to maybe let off of those reins just a little bit as you've, as you've gone through your life. Well, I haven't really quite figured out exactly the totality of, of why I have uh, always struggled with self-doubt and uh, uh, not really learned to enjoy uh, the experiences and the successes as well as the failures that I've had and learned from. Um, and, I, you know, I tend to believe very strongly that in human behavior, there are the answer for why you do something is on, is three through 12, not one. And you're just trying to figure out the percentage of each one. Um, I know a lot of it had to do with the family life I 
I had a twin brother who uh, never got through high school. And I, I had uh, 12 years of uh, college and four degrees. And in the third grade as twins in those days, they still, they, they, they put us in the same class. They didn't separate us. And I can remember uh, daily uh, two lines, him in one line, me facing him across the other line, each line competing and trying to figure out how to misspell the word so the teacher didn't know I was doing it on purpose. So I would sit down before my uh, brother. So I, I, I lived with the fact that every time I achieved something, I, I felt guilty about it. I, I, someone might come at very wisely who's listening. That's not very mature. And I agree with it. But I, my history um, is just that, you know, everything uh, uh, took a lot of effort and I was always willing to make the effort. Um, yeah, I had written down before that when you talked about um, the, the months surrounding his birth, you were preoccupied by failure. And I was thinking to myself, how could someone who's accomplished so much in life think of themselves as a failure? I was I was just interested in that. And you answered that, Brian. And Brian talks about that, the self-doubt. And now I can't find the question I wanted to ask. Um, you, ah, I forget what chapter it's in now. I'm trying to thumb through the book as I'm doing this. You talked about, um, and it's kind of in your lead to uh, lead to play. Is that the yes the organization? You talk about um, how when kids are little, we encourage them to fail. Not not to fail, but if they fail, get up, try again, do it again. But then as they get older, we don't seem to allow them to do that enough. Is that, and now now Brian and I, neither of us are parents, but we're both educators. Um, Is that, where, where do you think that comes from, that we don't let kids try more and fail as they get older a little bit? Well, I think it may come from very well-meaning positions of what we have learned or been taught or thought the culture or our religious experience or whatever has told us about what our role is as parents. And, and I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, attacking that. Um, people have good reasons for their convictions and, and the rules and so forth and so on. My statement is, is that we underestimate what children can do. And um, that we oftentimes get caught up in trying to create a path for them when in reality, we need to help them create their own path so that they will own that path. I I think parents are very well-meaning and I have no doubts about that, but I, I think we oftentimes try a little too hard and don't put enough faith and belief in our kids' ability to do it to overcome their limitations and to handle it when they do fail. Um, Another strong belief I have that comes in here, you know, there are many areas of life where the parents surely should lead the kids, education, religion. um, But but there are many areas where the kids should lead the parents. And uh, you do not um, learn responsibility by reading a book. You learn responsibility by being responsible, responsible. So we have to let kids do things and let them learn from that experience. And uh, um, I also believe very strongly 
that that which we create, we tend to support. So the whole idea that lead to play allows kids to create things for themselves. Like it's a program where young people create their own um, physical activity or health uh, programs and, and really make any kind of decision. And, uh, and if they do create it, then they will tend to support it. I um, piloted a uh, program called the student-led PE program. You know, kids get disinterested in PE in junior high school and high school. So I created a program where kids create their own PE, that which people create, they tend to support. They had to go to the administration and get the buy-off. They had to uh, look at the state requirements. But if kids get, have voice and choice and ownership, they will become the healthy uh, kind of people that every parent, I think, wants them to be. So I think I'm talking about a process by which we grow and develop and support our kids rather than making any comments about, well, don't do that and do this or whatever. Uh, I'm just into empowering young people. Brian, I'm going to step in just for a second. Uh, Dr. Selick, I was with my sister this morning and she's a, uh, she was a middle school and now she's a high school physical education teacher. And I was telling her about the book and, and that we were going to be talking to you tonight. And she talked about just that in her middle school phys ed classes, she would, when they would do games and stuff like that, she would pick captains of the teams and say, you know, the kid would say, Oh, there was a foul. What do you think? Mrs. D should, you know, and she'd go, no, no, you guys figure it out. Was it really a foul? You know, have the captains discuss it. And then she would also do this lesson where she would take all the equipment and bring it out of the closet, all the different stuff in there, and then put them in groups and tell them, make up a brand new game. Exactly. Come up with rules, come up with boundaries. You know, over like a week, they would come up with a brand new game. Absolutely. I think we, we talk as coaches, and I don't think – I know we talk as coaches and coach uh, Dr. Selleck, I'm an old basketball coach here too. So, um, you know, always talk is why don't our kids lead more? Where, where are the leaders in this group? Well, what, what, what both of you are talking about and suggesting is make the kids the leaders. Give them opportunities. I remember a few years into my coaching career, uh, I went to a coaching clinic and I heard somebody talk about let kids – pick the drills that you do in one practice one day or let them form those drills. And I remember the first time I rolled that out and kids looked at me like I was like, they, they were like, well, what do we do now? And I'm like, y'all, you got to figure it out. And it was just really empowering for them to get out there. And I can't remember what drill we were doing, but it didn't matter. They were picking it. They were in charge. And like you talk about, they took ownership of that. And I'm at a high school in South Carolina at Ridgeview high school. And I'm going to butcher the saying but we have a saying at Ridgeview that if a if a student can do it, then an adult should not do it. And basically meaning like if it's a, a podcast or whatever is going on, if a kid has the ability to do it, let them do it. And that gives them that empowerment, that ownership that you're talking about. I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing. Well, I, I, I love this story. I was work talking to a college coach a, a year or so ago, and um, it, I had this was about two weeks after the fall season had opened up and, and they'd had a scrimmage the previous week. And when I and the coach started talking, I said, well, how'd it go on the set coach kind of shook his head and said, horribly, they didn't do one thing that we'd been practicing for two weeks in the scrimmage. And I said, Oh gosh, 
how'd you handle it, coach? And he said, well, I sat them down and I let them know everything they did wrong. And if they kept doing it, blah, 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 blah. And I said, would you mind this old guy kind of throwing out something? And he said, well, yeah, go ahead, whatever. And I said, what if you'd have broken those 15 players up into five groups of three or three groups of five and ask them to evaluate their practice, the things they did well, the things they needed to improve, and what they would suggest um, that they do to improve themselves. Then you could jump on what they said. They, they would own it to some degree by having coming, come up with it. And I think we just plain don't. In fact, I like to say this, and, I'm, I, and I know I, I'm not trying to say I'm right, but I think all communication starts with the other person. I mean, you asked me a question. The conversation really didn't start until I responded to something that kind of hopefully mutually is of interest to both of us. So me just talking is not good conversation, but if it has something to do with something that's important to you, um, then it has a chance. So doc, I'm curious. And I, I don't know how to ask this question. I'm a podcast host and I don't know how to ask a question, but let me try this. <laughs> I know I was coached as a, in a way growing up where I didn't have much of a voice. It was, on the line, do this, do that. And like you mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, coaches and, and adults need to lead kids in certain, in certain areas of life. Uh, so I was told, I never was really asked what I thought, what I thought we should do. Uh, Chris, I'm assuming was probably coached a very similar way and, and likely you were coached a very similar way as well. Um, so how did you come to change your perspective a little bit to where now you're asking coaches like, Hey, what did, did you ask the kids what they think? How, how did you come full circle with this to be able to see the world the way you see it now? Well, I don't think I did. It's interesting. I, <laughs> um, well, I'll tell one story. I love it. That junior high school, there was a ninth and 10th grade teams I was talking about wonderful coach I had. And, uh, so we go out to play this one game one day and, and the other team's doing a box and one on me. And of course, I'd never seen a box in one. So I immediately called timeout. And we go over to the coach and I said, Coach, what do I do? He says, I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> that has lived with me forever. And, <laughs> and my college experience was pretty much, especially my senior year at Stanford, uh, the la we were 18 and six. We lost uh, four of those six games by one or two points. So it was a very unpredicted but outstanding uh, basketball team. And we, almost every game would come down to the last shot. With 15 seconds, the coach would have us call timeout, walk over to the bench, and the coach would say, what side of the court do you want the ball on, George, <laughs> for the last shot? And so I think um, for some reason, uh, I've always had coaches who who empowered me, I guess, and uh, – and, uh, trusted in the way I, that I played. I, I think I was a point guard before they ever called them point guards. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I loved that, uh, that approach to the game. In fact, I wrote a book called Court Sense, The Invisible Edge in Basketball and Life. And it was the first book on court sense ever written. And let me tell you, it's not a good book. <laughs> I didn't, I, I really, I wasn't thinking that far. I introduced the subject 
and it made some points in, in other areas. But after that, I think there have been many books written on court sense, and all of them, I'm sure, superseded that one. Well, Coach, just to go back to what you said about listening, and it's one of, it's one of the things I highlighted. Oh, okay. It says, in short, if you have the courage to listen, your relationships will benefit. I love the word choice there, the courage to listen. Because sometimes when we truly listen, you know, we may hear things about something we believe that are different. We may hear something about ourselves that we don't like. So I love the word choice there and the courage to listen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, question about the book. Question about the book. Oh, so to go in the opposite direction of Brian, Brian and I have been very good friends for 20 years uh, and we're opposite in this respect. He is the self-doubt person. And I am someone who is totally comfortable in who I am. Would you agree with that, Brian? Absolutely. 100%. I'm comfortable in the person I am, the friend that I am, the fat guy that I am, everything. I'm totally cool with it. Um, and you talk, you have this chapter talking about um, being yourself. And you talk about, you look around wide-eyed, awed, curious, and ask a lot of questions. You soak up the sights, smells, and sounds of your environment, talking about your grandson, obviously. And I jotted a note down there. A few summers ago, I was in Columbus, Ohio, by myself. I'm not afraid to go away by myself, to go out to dinner by myself, to go to the movies by myself. And I remember going to the Columbus Zoo because I heard all about it from, uh, well, God, what's the guy's name? Used to be on uh, Johnny Carson all the time. I can't think of his name now. Um, the Columbus Zoologist. And so I wanted to go to the Columbus Zoo. And I spent the day there by myself and I didn't see every animal for one point like an hour. I just sat on a bench and I watched all the families go by and I took in those sights, those sounds, those smells. Talk about the, the insights that your grandson gives you in that that observational world that kids that curiosity that they have. Well, very early in life, I think I I. Uh... No, I shouldn't say early in life, but earlier in my educational life, I was introduced to the concept of child likeness versus childishness. And uh, Kean is, is, is the model for child likeness, which is open to new experiences, always ready for a new opportunity, enthusiastic, um, uh, sharing and on and on and on, um, whereas childishness tends to be uh, what we usually re refer to as immaturity. And everything about uh, Kean, he's always ready to go. He's always exploring. Um, he uh, is not hard on himself if he fails. He's more into the process than the performance. Um, and uh, um I just think it's a natural thing, perhaps, I'm saying perhaps, that all kids are naturally that way until it's no longer uh, being supported and encouraged. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I show the cover of the book, if you would, because when my wife and the mother uh, see the picture is a little boy leading me and uh my wife and uh, and um, the, the uh, Kean's mother sent some pictures to the publisher to the publisher, and one of the pictures had me walking ahead of him down that pathway. 
And I said, no, no. They were very collaborative with me in, in working out the publication. I said, he has been leading me and inspiring me since the day he was born. And uh, uh, there's just a wonderful uh, openness, um, freshness, uh, inquisitiveness, uh, ready to go, willing to try something new. Um, uh, and you just, you just relish it and watch it and, 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 and enjoy it. You know, Doc, I, I think it's I've read, like I said earlier, read, read a good many books, self-help books, leadership books, growth books. It's refreshing to have a book essentially written from a two-year-old's perspective exactly. to adults <laughs> and, and to be able to see the world uh, through his eyes. And you talk about that curiosity and there's a line in the book somewhere that you mentioned, it's hard to be curious and hostile at the same time. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and I, again, I work in public education. Our kids this year are um, to take something from spinal tap. They're in a, at an 11 this year. Like they're just out running around. And lots of times I can find myself being hostile. Like, can y'all just stay in the building? Can you go to class? Can you da, 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 da. all this stuff instead of like you say, and, and like Ian's teaching you it, it, be a little curious. Hey, what, what's what, maybe why what's going on here? Oh, they haven't been in school for a year and a half. They've been around their families for a year and a half. They don't know how to act around their or whatever it is, but I'd love to hear more, more of your thoughts about, just being curious and maybe as a way in this world that we need to be more curious about what's going on in 2021. Well, we live obviously in a very difficult time and, and there are no simple answers. And uh, um, one thing that was different, I think in the fifties, when uh, I grew up in the forties or the fifties is that the culture delivered some common messages about how to behave and what was respect and, and how we should operate amongst one another. And um, the, I think World War II certainly had something to draw us together and, and help us to see the need for community and the need for each other, and maybe to overcome some of our biases and our prejudices. And I look around today and the culture doesn't provide it. So the, the family's left to it. And, and sadly, in many religious institutions aren't doing a good job of that because where they have always led, maybe in that, they're getting caught up in other issues too much, perhaps, just one man's opinion. But um, um, so if you don't have it in the family, where are you going to get it? And uh, that's a real concern I have. Uh, uh, I like to bring up when I'm in a group that where people have very divergent views, I try to move the conversation. Well, what about the world we're leaving these kids? We can all agree on that, whatever our, our different differences are, our beliefs are. And uh, what are we doing that we can leave behind for these kids? And how can we work together to help these kids? So, um, you know, I, I was uh, trained as a psychologist and worked as a psychologist, but I also learned very quickly that you can't be a good psychologist unless you're also a sociologist. The community counts, the system counts. And even though our systems today are sort of outdated, really, when you think about it, they haven't 
when people start arguing about government, I oftentimes think that what they're really raising is the issue that the system isn't working. And you look at the Constitution, it doesn't seem to be up to date to, 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 to work with today's issues. So um, th there's so much more that we all want together, but we seem to always be talking about what we don't have in common. And uh, maybe we could get back to talking about what we do have in common and, and how we're in this together. I don't know Sorry. if I answered your question. And no, no. <laughs> yeah. One, one, one last thing from the book, and, and I wrote the word coaching next to this. And, uh, and we have a lot of coaches that listen to the podcast. Obviously, we have a lot of coaches on the podcast. You, you were a successful high school basketball coach as well. Um, you, you quoted author Henry James advised, observe perpetually. And like I said, I wrote coaching next to that because uh, I am a high school basketball coach now. And it also goes back to sort of the listening thing. Sometimes I observe other basketball coaches and during a game and they're constantly yelling and talking and talking and yelling and yelling and talking and talking. And sometimes I say, what did you do in practice that you have to be constantly talking the whole game? And I tend to observe more when I'm coaching. Talk about what we can learn, not only as coaches, as people by, by observation. You're staying quiet in the moment and observing something. Everyone wants to, especially in today's world, and we're talking about this on a podcast, everyone wants to give their opinion instead of observe something and take it in first. Well, you bring up a really profound point, and I'm not sure I've thought enough enough on that to, to answer uh, your question very well, but the other day we live on a little small street in a, in, in condo uh, neighborhood and uh, somebody came down this small street and he was standing out there in the middle of his car, but in his car, he was right in the middle. And then there was a, something parked on the right and there was not room to get through. And, um, uh, I wondered what what was going on with this guy, and he and basically he wanted to turn into the to the driveway. Now that was the last thing I thought because he'd come rushing racing down the uh, the road and looked like he was going to go you know 100 miles more as well as 100 miles an hour, but he had a simple desire, and I was in his way from him just to turn into his a driveway. He was a new guest in this home or something like that. And it, it does remind you that, you know, people have good reasons for what they do. They may not be acceptable reasons. They may not be morally acceptable. They may not be acceptable to others, but people have a reason for what they believe. And so we, we need to be they're listening and observing enough so that we communicate that we're interested in helping them uh, articulate if they are not able to do that and, and tell us more so that we can understand where they're coming from. But once we understand where somebody's coming from, perhaps then we can find a mutual way to get someplace together. Um, I don't know. I, I hope I'm not being too philosophical here, but um, yeah. What I what I'm going to need you to do, Doctor Selleck, is call me tomorrow morning and just say that 
before I walk into the school building and just, oh, Brian, just remember, be curious about people, listen, that know what's going on, that they have, have a reason. So that was great. Good. That was that was one of them. So like, that was well, let me just say a couple more things. I guess we're about signing off here is as I reflected on this book. I think what I was writing, everything I wished I knew before I went to college. In other words, <laughs> Now, maybe I wouldn't have gotten known it fully, you know, gotten the answers. But if I had known what, what I really was dealing with, I'd have gotten a lot more out of my education and a lot more out of my social experience. And then the other thing and the last thing I see with this a book and maybe somebody in your audience would pick it up. Um, I've always been concerned with helping coaches and, and mentors of, of, of other young people or mentors of anybody. Uh, help people realize, especially athletes, but someone could be a great artist or a great musician or whatever, highly talented and highly skilled people oftentimes overlook or don't get into the issue of growing and developing as human beings. So a good, there are some real good coaches, you know, who want to help their kids grow and develop as human beings and, and but they may not you know have all the tools or information on how to do that. Historically, life skills has been the modem, the means of trying to help kids grow and develop in sport. There's more to sport than sport. But because life skills has been so focused on how you function as an athlete, you're a good sport after the game, which you should be and during the game and all that, the transference of what your kids could potentially learn on the court to the other areas of their life doesn't seem to be working very well. And I think my story was always, you know, as you read through the book, that's one way to look at it is I wasn't a very mature, grown, developed person, even though I was having a lot of success educationally and athletically. And it's taken me a lifetime which somebody commented to me at breakfast just yesterday, you know, you, you seem to still be trying to grow. And, and um, so that we need a new modality. We need a new, uh, a book's not going to do it. We knew a, a new approach like the life skills approach for, for coaches and mentors of all kinds in all ways uh, to be able to help people transfer what their experience is, plus and minus, and, and, and grow and develop as human beings. And uh, that's, I think, a tremendous, especially with the so much professionalization of sports today down to, you know, preschool even. So uh, thank you for letting me, uh, you know, get that off my chest. But um, hopefully somebody, ideally the way to do this is to get together a group of college students maybe a league even. I mean, I'd love the Pac-12 to do this or at the SEC gets a couple of athletes from each school to come together and work on this problem because, again, you start with the kids because they're the ones that we want to they get the message. They need to tell us how to give them the message. So that's kind of my last thing that I'm kind of struggling with on, on no, that. So that, that, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm hearing that and I'm thinking about 
Well, episode 25 was with Matt Park. He's a part of the Positive Coaching Alliance, which I know you're on the National Advisory Board for that group. So as you were telling that story, talking about that, I'm thinking about resources that are available for coaches, positive, positive coaches and alliance being one of them, TOC Consulting, episode 132 with J.P. Nurbin, all of these organizations that are interested in the growth of coaches and therefore being able to pass down these things to our student athletes that you're talking about um, to bridge that gap between just not just winning. It's not all about winning. It's not all about money. It's about how are you growing? How are you giving back to that was so freely given to you? And those are just two resources that I, that I know about. And there are tons more lead them up with Adam Bradley. There's so many great things. And this book is another one. And uh, this book is again, this one's going to stay on my coffee table. I've, I've dog-eared more pages there. There, there are more dog-eared pages than not dog-eared pages <laughs> right now. So I'm going to refer back to it. It's helped, it's helped relight a fire within me to be able to show up to Ridgeview high school on Monday and say, Hey, what can I give back today? What kind of impact? What, what is my purpose? And we talked about that in the book too. Uh, what is my purpose? So Kian and me the, is the book it's on Amazon, get it, read it, share it with folks. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Dr. Sully. We can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Well, I thank you for your kindness to me and it's been a real joy. I thank you. Yes, sir. We'll go ahead and put a button on this one for my co-host, Chris de Blasio. I am Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games. <laughs>